0: hello and welcome to radio a podcast produced by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs i'm your host ross drakes and this podcast is produced by the entrepreneurs organization in south africa today i'm here with dylan jerry who's the founder and ceo of kilowatt av amongst other companies welcome dylan
1: thanks ross thanks for having me on the show i don't have such a polished intro as you do but i can work on that for next time right Um, My first question is the same that I ask everyone. Uh, Give us your elevator pitch.
0: Okay,
1: Um, I suppose the Richard Mulholland version is, have you ever been to a show or a conference and not been able to see the screen or hear the presenter talk and then got more frustrated than the presenter when the slides didn't change or the video didn't play? At Kilowatt, what we do is we make sure that never happens. Um probably took me seven years to get to that and for those seven (laughs) years my parents thought I was a drug dealer or a wedding DJ but in a nutshell what we really do is we set up sound and lighting and structures at events and that's where the company was born and it's evolved over the years to include things like show design, production management, uh, manufacturing of stage sets and um, exhibition stands and yeah it's just constantly evolving as this journey progresses. So, so how
0: did you end up here? I mean how long how long have you been in the game? How, what, what made you wake up one day and be like I don't want to be a wedding DJ anymore, I want to, <laughs> I want to earn all the equipment?
1: So it actually goes back probably to about 1992-93 when uh, I was in an Afrikaans school and I couldn't play rugby anymore. And I said to my mother, there's no ways that I can go to the Afrikaans high school and not play rugby. So off I went to an English school, but my friends all went to the Afrikaans school. And uh, I felt quite lost for probably my whole high school career. And um, But the school was very renowned for its bands and music was a big part of the school. My mom was a music teacher, so I was involved in the band. And every year they used to do a massive show, and this show was pretty technical. So they went all out with pyrotechnics and lighting. And I decided, like, this is where I need to get involved. I've I've always loved pushing buttons. Uh, my parents have always said, if there was a big red button that said this, if you push this button, the world will blow up. Like I would push the button, and so I started doing that and started getting involved with audiovisual at a school level, where I ran assemblies and later on um, started getting involved with the concert band shows, um, did all the really rubbish jobs in the beginning, like pull cables and solder cables. And eventually our school implemented a radio station and uh, I got involved with that and eventually ran the radio station and uh, then moved to Cape Town where I supplemented my income with uh, being a DJ. But I'd actually then gone into corporate and I was working in IT um, but still DJing on the side, and uh, in 2001, I had quite a bad accident where Pyrex measuring jug exploded in my hands and cut all the nerves off, and it led to me losing my job because I had to be in casts for nine weeks. And the the company that I was renting the DJ equipment from, they'd been offering me jobs for months and months and months, but I always said to them, you know, you guys would never be able to afford me. I was super arrogant, and now I had no other options. And so I got back into the industry in September 2001 and um, and spent a couple of years there. And then in uh, a, an impulsive weekend in 2007, decided that I could do all of this on my own and uh, made the decision on the Saturday, resigned on the Monday and started the business that following week. Oh, wow.
0: Do you have any Pyrex in your house? Anymore?
1: Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's actually it's actually quite a common thing, believe it or not. Really? Um, yes, they are microwave and oven proof, but over years, uh, with expansion and contraction of air, they weaken, and so the doctor that did my surgery actually said that was quite a common thing. So, stay away from Pyrex.
0: That's quite wild. I mean, I think we can end the episode. As as yeah, like like sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> so now you've started this company, did you have like huge financial backing and clients or, or how did you get into it? So I think
1: um, I think that, again, going back a bit, you know, we were raised in a, in a fantastic family, but very middle class. And I think my propensity to risk has always been way bigger than that of the rest of my family. And so while my family always did the best they could to get a, give us what we needed, it could never cover the things that I wanted. And so from a very young age, I started working. I mean, I can remember as young as like being 12, 13 years old, working at the petrol station, not being able to get paid because it was illegal, but uh, being able to get tips. And so, you know, access to to people that had money and to people that were financially well off was very limited in my life. Um, And so I didn't let that stop me. I put together this incredible business plan uh, between that Saturday and Sunday. And and I say incredible, it was probably really rubbish if I look at it now. Um, It was probably just a list of equipment that uh, I needed to buy. But it turns out that I needed to find 5 million rand to be – in a competitive position with the company that i had left and so off i set to go and find this five million rand and no one wanted to give it to me which uh, i still don't understand until today like i went to my parents to see if they could help me they're like no that sounds like a really bad idea i went to everyone i knew and no one wanted to give me this money but uh you know as with many things in life if something's destined to be it will be And in that time, uh, so take you back to 2007, the world was a very different place. I mean, that May 2007 or June 2007 was the month that the first iPhone was launched. Um, I don't think it actually came onto the shelves for two months after that because there were some issues. But, I mean, just think how different the world is today just because of the whole Apple and iPhone ecosystem. Mm. It was the month when Madeleine McCann went missing. Um, which still hasn't been found. And it was also a time in South Africa where financial institutions would send you credit cards in the post. I nice. do if you remember that, Ross. Version
0: and so, <laughs> money. Was like shipping those things out. Virgin money
1: 2020. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so feeling very despondent. Uh, and, and also there were some other challenges that we'll, we'll get into. Uh, the major one of being a massive lawsuit that I entered with my previous boss that, that took sort of 18 months to resolve. But I was like, what have I done? I've re- left a great job where I was earning good money and thinking I could start this business and now I don't have any money. You know, I want to start an audiovisual equipment rental business and I don't have any money. And I went to the post office to collect my mail and in there was a credit card from SAA which is a fly SAA credit card and I had a 50,000 rand credit limit. I was like, this is it. I'm going (laughs) to start my business on this credit card. Um, At that stage, my financial savvy was very different to now. I basically lived on credit cards and my philosophy or my purpose in life was that If I was going to die, I was going to take a bank with me. (laughs) And uh, so, I mean, I didn't see that as risk at all to take another 50,000 Rand on a credit card. And that's what we did. I drew out the 50,000 Rand in cash. We put down a deposit on a uh, warehouse. We put down a deposit on a van. We bought one laptop and I spent the rest of the money doing a brand identity and business cards. And I was like, I'm going to fake it till I make it. But if I need to get in front of corporate clients, I need to look like a business. And that's how it started. And uh, I suppose the most interesting insight from that or the most interesting learning from that is that we get so caught up in the commodity of our business that we don't realize that that's not really why we're making money. We make money in business because as entrepreneurs or as business people or as companies, we're able to add value to commodities. So I started to realize very quickly that even though I had no equipment, if I could provide a more creative or a better service or a better experience to clients, I could find the equipment anywhere. Mm. And so that was our initial philosophy was that We will give you the right equipment for your show. We won't give you the equipment on our shelves because there was none. We didn't tell the clients that. Um, And also we would add value through creativity. Yeah. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we actually started saying, okay, now we're going to start buying equipment incrementally so that we can actually start recovering some of the cost of sale of renting in equipment from competitors and suppliers that we were actually now starting to strengthen because of our business taking off.
0: Yes. I mean, I, I love this, this that kind of thought of yours of, it's that adding value or like, how are you taking this tool that you have? You know, we have graphic design and strategy as our toolkits, but there's a million designers Absolutely. out there. So you're not just selling design. Like what do you, Absolutely. what actual problem are you solving or what thing are you doing with your design? Yeah. Uh, I think in your Absolutely. world, it's probably the same. There's a thousand people who can throw up a light Absolutely. and a and a speaker no. and, and hit play, but that's not, you no. know, that's what you're delivering in the end, but it's not the whole value no. chain and probably not why your customers keep coming back to you.
1: Absolutely, you know, I think, and I think, I say it again, like I think so many people make a mistake, not just business owners, but people in sales as well, in that they think the commodity is what allows them to be able to sell the product or the service. And so, so often, I'll see sales reps or people wanting to sell me something, and they spend so much time selling me the speaker or selling me the light. And, you know, there's so many lights out there. There's so many speakers out there. Technology has gotten to a point where, you know, there's not massive gaps between the best and the worst anymore. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's, yeah, it was a massive learning for me to understand, A, that if I gave you 20 million rand, or a bank gave you 20 million Rand, you can go to the same companies that I go to and buy the same equipment that I buy. So how do you create differentiation if everyone has access to the same commodities? The second thing is that, you know, we think that we do something innovative or that we do something groundbreaking and that's enough to continue settling the business forward. But, you know, what is new and innovative today is tomorrow's accepted norm and then it becomes commoditized and then it drives prices down so we've constantly as business people got to look how can we add value how can we create a premium experience how can we do everything possible to move away from an environment where it's just about price
0: i mean i think a really good example of that now is kind of cell phones where we're seeing for the first time smartphone people are holding on to smartphones longer because they've been so incremental in the updates yeah that i've got a, a galaxy s9 and they released the galaxy s10 and i look at it and i'm like yeah it's, yeah it's basically the same thing like so am i gonna is it worth me spending eighteen thousand rand to buy this new one and you're seeing this global yeah. like drop in it but i'm sure if they actually did really innovate and do something completely different with the phone everybody would you know like would sell their their thing immediately look at look at how apple did it yeah. by removing the home button all of a sudden yeah. everyone had the new phone in five seconds whereas a couple of generations before yeah. people were just holding on to them
1: i think i think tech companies have it really difficult and uh Because there's always going to be that group of people that are early adopters that want the latest, greatest, and they want to be ahead of the curve. But I think if you look at businesses like Apple and many other businesses, businesses like Kodak that in the past were almost bankrupt and having to reinvent themselves constantly Mm. so that they have a portion of their business that is non-commoditized and that can add real value and then be able to commercialize that.
0: So now you, you know, you've, you've kind of had this fledgling business and you've kind of grow, grown up now. Like how big is Kilowatt now and what kind of work are you guys doing compared to back then?
1: Yeah, I think um, what's really interesting is that the event landscape has changed massively Um I think it's becoming a very important part of marketing, you know, digital marketing, e-commerce, websites, that stuff's kind of becoming hygiene factor. Like if you don't have that in your business, then you can't even play. So, you know, that's the pay to play part of your business. Mm -hmm. And um, I think where we come in is that at some point you've got to break out of that digital world and you've got to touch your clients. So speak to them, get in front of them and touch them. And so, You know when I started all events looked the same. It was two screens and a stage and a massive projector and that was it and everyone basically use that same formula where today customers have to create unique identities and they have to use what the environment looks like, what the stage looks like, what the content looks like to differentiate themselves from their competitors. I mean if you just take the financial services industry for example and you speak to a broker they are going to events every week and how do you grab their attention and create that relationship bond with them, so that you can start the process of converting them to use your product? So, the, the the point I'm trying to make is that the technology hasn't really changed that much. You know, speakers have, you know, lights have become LED, and power supplies have become smaller, and speakers have become lighter. And but ultimately, sound still comes out of the speakers, and light still comes out of the lights.
0: There's still a so, PowerPoint playing on the laptop. Yeah, and there's still the a
1: PowerPoint playing on the laptop. So I think to answer your question is, you know, we started off doing these small shows that we just rolled out like a machine in a factory. And, uh, and then we got a lucky break. We got a, we got a contract with one of the cigarette manufacturers to start rolling out these massive parties. And um, and that allowed us to become really creative. And it also bumped the scale of our events up massively. And eventually when, I think in 2008, 2009, when the smoking laws came in, all of that turnover was wiped out of our business. And we basically had to go find it. And the easiest place for us to find that was in the corporate space. But we took the knowledge that we'd now learnt and the creativity that we'd learned in the entertainment space and took that to the corporate industry. So. I think that our events have become a lot bigger. Our events have become a lot more purpose-driven alongside brands and what they're trying to achieve. And the sheer number of them have just multiplied. I mean, we would do anything between six and 700 events a year now in Africa, in and around Africa in the live event space in, in this country. So yeah, it's been an amazing journey. We've uh, we've got offices and factories now in Cape Town and Joburg. And, close to 60 people full time a couple of hundred people on freelance basis that help us roll out projects
0: Right,
1: and you were telling me before we started kind
0: of um, chatting that you've slowly pulled yourself out of the operations of the business Um, what are you doing with your time, do you just hang around in your speeder um, at the ocean uh, um, doing nothing or or how do you fill your days now that you're not the the key operator?
1: So I think that that this is always a difficult transition for entrepreneurs because they learn, they're forced to back themselves when they start a business. The problem is at some time you don't end up being the smartest person in the room anymore and at that stage you've either become so arrogant about it or you, no one can convince you otherwise that you remain operationally entangled with a business for way longer than what you should be. And I think I really have EO to be grateful for for helping me with this process because I remember joining in um, probably about six years ago and uh, we were a tiny company. The day I joined EO, I just employed my 15th staff member. We just made the revenue criteria. And my biggest fear was how am I going to make the time commitment of being able to invest six hours a month into EO? and at that point in time i knew i had to do something i never studied after school i had a dismal uh, matric experience i I got six percent for maths in matric Mm -hmm. and i actually have my reports framed on the wall so that uh, i can show staff that anything is really possible (laughs) But, uh, you know, so I, n- I knew that I was building a company and I couldn't just carry on running the company based on gut feel. Because even at 15 staff, I knew that in this country there were four to five dependents that were, that were, you know, accountable to each person working in the business. So that scaled that number up to 60. And I knew I had to start educating myself and going on this personal development journey. But I didn't know where I was going to find the time. And so anyway, I forced myself into it and uh, I went to my first forum and I switched my phone off and panicked the whole way through. And at the end of the forum, I realized like my business is fine, didn't explode, didn't burn to the ground. And as I started getting more and more involved in EO, I started to realize that I was creating vacant seats in the company that I was previously occupying. And this created opportunity for other people to step up. And I started realizing that, that I definitely was not the smartest person in the room and I needed to make space for the smarter people in the room to do their job. And, uh, and that started happening and it was an absolutely beautiful process because in the areas where I'm weak like admin and organizational structure and all things basically that don't include vision and preaching to your staff to follow you to as you go down the road into the sunset, I was really bad at. But when I started stepping out of the way, I realized that there were so many incredibly talented people in this business that could take care of those things. And slowly but surely over time, I was able to extract myself completely operationally to the point that I couldn't tell you what events we're doing today, tomorrow or next week. And, um, the fear is always that now you've freed up all the time, what do you do with that time? And in the beginning it was difficult and, and actually still to today it does sometimes get challenging because you're sitting in the office, the company's running really well and you've got two hours free and you could really be putting it into strategic thought or you know having conversations with, with key people in the company and then you spend it on social media or you, you end up wasting that time. And so I started becoming quite strict around either doing things that were benefiting me from a personal development point of view And I really started to focus on strategy and culture. So, you know, very often people think that when you are operationally not involved anymore, you're not involved in the business. Mm -hmm. I absolutely am still the CEO of this business. I just believe that the modern day CEO needs to be way more focused on strategy, on culture, on emotional intelligence, and on being hyper aware of what's going on around them and how the world is changing. And so Mm -hmm. I spend my time focusing on those things. Can can I ask you a question
0: just to sort of frame this for the users, um, the users, the listeners? Um,
1: What do you believe is strategy and what do you believe is culture? Interesting question. I I believe that strategy is taking the time out of your day-to-day operations to look at your business from a helicopter or an overview perspective with people in your team that are close to the business and thinking about the business thinking about how have you been doing things? How do you wanna be doing things? What has worked? What hasn't worked? And then taking all of those things and looking from this list that we've created through brainstorming or various techniques out there that are available, what is the lowest hanging fruit that we can really put into a plan that can give us a roadmap to where we wanna go? And uh, and then culture is how you align people's behavior To that strategy to take the business in that direction. I always say that, that for me, culture is how your staff behave or what they do when no one is watching them. And so really you need to know that the team behind you buys into the strategy and that they have the right habits and attitude and that they are happy in their workplace to be able to drive this culture for, this strategy forward.
0: I like that because I think a lot of people believe that uh, culture is a foosball table and a popcorn machine in the corner of the break room. um, And strategy is a document that you create once a year and flaunt
1: on a big stage. Um, Yeah, I think, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, this is been a process for me and by no means do I claim to be a master in this and it's also not something it's one of those things in life where you never cross the finish line you don't cross the finish line and go oh I've got strategy figured out I've got culture figured out it's an ongoing evolution and development and it's a journey and that's what I really enjoy but uh, I think I was also that person and I think an element of it is needed to kickstart culture But really, as with many things in life, it it really boils down to intent. You know, like if you are not thinking about culture and if there is zero intent, a culture is still going to exist. It's going to form whether you like it or not. Is it going to be the culture that you want to be associated with and that works for your business? Or is it going to be a culture that dictates how you do business? I think that's the scary thing. So we do a lot of those fun, I call them sort of the Google world things, but we've started to realize that they're actually not that important in driving behavioral change as much as it is to just get people's buying that they are working at a place that is really cool and really out there. But it's such a small part of what aligns culture to strategy. So
0: now how do, you, how do you spend your day? So you, you wake up at, at 5 a.m. and go for a cycle and then what?
1: So I, um, I, I think that I can say this safely, but I feel sometimes like I'm employed by EO now. I think uh, <laughs> a lot of my time goes to EO. And, uh, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because I only do things for EO quite selfishly. So I always look at where does the organization need help and what am I going to learn by helping them. So it's like a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. But um, basically I start my day fairly early in the morning. I've got three children. And so I, I, I believe that you have to get your mind primed for positivity and for peak performance especially you know with with the state of our country at the moment it's so easy to be dragged down um, and, and I suppose it's also easy to become naive but like in my life I kind of say like what is in my control and what is out of my control and the things that are out of my control I need to be mentally strong enough that I can get through those things without them pulling me down so I start my day early in the morning anywhere between 4 30 and 5 a.m I will then get up and do some really cheesy positive reading for 10 minutes I would then meditate for 10 minutes I then go and train or do physical exercise for anywhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half I come back and I do uh, positive journaling everything that happened in my day yesterday and then um Started about a year ago doing gratitude journaling and just really getting really deep about what I'm grateful for in my life. And then I wake my, my kids up and uh, take them to school and I would then sort of start my day. I'd either come back home, listen to a podcast or work on some strategy, get into the office sort of 10 a.m., and then spend a couple of hours at the office, um, predominantly with HR, seeing sort of how culture is tra- tracking, spend some time with uh, my COO and see how execution's tracking, and then sort of head back home in the afternoon. And then do a, I do a lot of traveling for EO and um, traveling around the world, uh, doing strategy, strategy summits and uh, doing mentoring and everything that's helping me refine my skill to be better at strategy and culture in my own business.
0: And how do you, how do you, like, so, so if someone's not actively working on their culture, how, how would you, like, how do you work on your culture and like, what do you, you know, like what lessons have you learned on your culture journey?
1: Well, I think one of the big lessons that I've learned is that we underestimate leadership and Everyone in your business can be a leader in some way. You know, in our business, one of our culture leaders in the business is a barista and structurally in the company organogram. She's like virtually at the bottom of the organogram, but from a culture point of view, she's a, she's like right at the top. She's leading the company in terms of culture. And I think that if you're getting culture really right, you're creating habits that people buy into and eventually don't have to think about them anymore. So, you know, for me, I believe that I need to be in a positive mindset and I need to be in a mindset that is open to change and open to seeing opportunity. And then we create this culture that eventually starts evolving naturally and people buy into the habits. Um, as we've, as we've matured, we have become a lot more deliberate about those things. And so we've got a main culture driver in our business, which we call audience activism. So everything revolves around that. You know, how can we give the best show to an audience member? And that encompasses everything, you know? So how can they have the best experience? How can they go away and actually move the needle? of what the company presenting that event was trying to do. And what that means is that there's behaviors that go with that. So you know, instead of a sound engineer standing at the back of the room going testing, testing, one, two, uh, he actually goes and sits down in a seat because the sound profile can change in that meter that in a big venue, the sound profile can change. So going and sitting down in a chair and seeing how does the sound sound in the chair? the lighting designer sitting in a chair making sure he's walking around and that there aren't lights shining in his eyes. So those behaviors out in the field, but then also bringing it back to the office is how can you be an audience activist in everything that you do? So, you know, we, we determine your audience as anyone who is standing in front of you. So for example, if sales is going to finance and they need to request a purchase order, at that point of the engagement where sales hands over the document to finance, finance is sales's audience. And they need to do everything in their power to give them the best experience possible. Then the minute finance takes that document and takes on that task, sales becomes their audience. And so by just having a simple Simple purpose. We've mm-hmm. started being able to align cultural habits to that and just being more deliberate and more intentful around that, it's it's helped our culture grow stronger.
0: I mean I love that that kind of simple core, that simple message that is easy for anybody to understand, but at the same time is applicable in whatever job you're doing so you can sit in your seat and think about that um how how did you get there and how do you measure so you know it's it's great to have all these behaviors are you measuring people and rewarding them based
1: on these behaviors how how does that work so we always knew that we were different in the industry and and because we didn't have any equipment our real assets were our people so we heavily invested in people to become better and better and better and actually i think that we we only had our first resignation in the business after seven years. So we were really doing a lot to treat staff really well. And, um, you know, in terms of change management, whenever something happened that would disrupt the organization, we would try and tag something onto that that made the business really personable and You know, gave the business a really high EQ to show staff that we really cared. And one example of that is that one year we weren't able to pay bonuses in December. We just didn't have the cash flow for it. And our business, you know, December is quite quiet for us. And what we decided to do is we decided to move bonuses from December to March. And we just felt that a, We, you know, hey, we didn't have the money, so we needed to come up with a plan, (laughs) but then obviously you justified as an entrepreneur. And so the justification was that, you know, people generally spend their bonuses on Christmas, they spend too much money, so if they get money at the end of Feb for March, you know, it's like, they can actually go do something productive with that money. And so we had a meeting and we told the staff this, and obviously people were super unhappy, because it was change. And so what I decided to do that year is I decided to do a handwritten card for every single staff member. And I sat down with a list of all our staff and I literally wrote a, a, a handwritten card about what that person meant for the company that year. And the funniest thing happened. I had more people thank me for the card. Than had ever thanked me for a bonus before, and so that is a habit that we've continued. We do still today. I mean, mm-hmm. my first couple of days of holiday, I can't move my hand because <laughs> so many cards I've written so many cards, and we've again we've evolved that to I do handwritten birthday cards for every single person, and. Um, you know, I think just to premise that, I think that we are, I think industry is slowly moving from a very masculine, autocratic, carrot and stick environment that has existed since the Industrial Revolution into a much more feminine space. You know, um, carrot and stick doesn't seem to be working all that well anymore. And these sort of high EQ payoff activities have really helped us to move into the new sort of future of of, of business. Um, To answer your question on how we measure it, we started measuring culture three years ago, and again, there are probably scientific ways or Harvard Business Review ways of doing this, but uh, we entrepreneurially winged it, and we actually decided to use the MPS scoring system. So what we do is once a year in September, we do a company happiness survey, And we use Google to survey our staff. It's completely anonymous. And we ask them four questions. We ask them on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is really shit and 10 is amazing. How likely are you to recommend to friends and family that working at Kilowatt is amazing? Then the next question is, what can we do to score a perfect 10? The third question is, what makes you happy at work? The fourth question is, what makes you sad at work? And we use the detractor, the promoter scoring system to give us a metric. And then what we do is off the back of that metric, we decide what do we need to achieve from a strategic imperative and what can we implement to get staff excited about moving to that strategic uh, imperative. So three years ago, we scored 52%. Then we implemented a whole lot of things. The following year we scored 66 and last year we scored 81%. And so we really have a solid baseline now and we've actually last year started inviting staff to be part of the task team that gets to decide what are the changes that we make in the business? And those changes are various. I mean, a couple of years ago, we also decided to stop doing Christmas parties. We just felt that as a diverse business, like there were so many religions represented, it wasn't fair to do a, a Christmas party. Also staff, you know, generally from the 12th, 13th of December, people are leaving to go on holiday. So we would always struggle to get everyone there. And, um, you know, it just didn't work for us. So we looked at the calendar and we looked, you know, where is, where, where's a date that makes sense? And it would always be in winter when we quieter. And we decided instead of doing a Christmas party, we're gonna do an awards ceremony. And we, through this process, started realizing that so many of our staff that works for an event, te- sort of live event technical services company have never been to an event. And they never get to experience events because they're in the back office. And so we had all these unintended consequences come from this one decision. We started to, so it's a formal dinner. We do a formal prize giving. There's a whole lot of prizes. Uh, we have all our shareholders there. Are you the MC? and uh, Sometimes, but my, my <laughs> business partner is actually better at that than me. Okay, um, I can edit that out. If you <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the unintended consequences is that we realized that nothing drives people more then recognition from their peers or recognition in front of their peers and so that's become part of our annual habit is having this award ceremony um we do we had another challenge that we faced around uh, absenteeism and there's staff out there, I'm sure you know as an entrepreneur, that are professionals at understanding how sick leave works. And, uh, you know, every so often on a Monday they're not there and on a Friday they're not there. And our absenteeism rate of sort of total man hours was above 8%. And we're like, how can we solve this problem? And from the, the feedback that we've gotten through these surveys, people were telling us that we need to communicate. Staff told us that we need to communicate with them more. You know, we we kind of I've realized since we leave our staff completely in the blind. Uh we all know what's going on at top level and maybe the exco, but from there down, people are so often blind and we're not speaking to our staff enough. And so we went, okay, how can we solve this problem? So we said, cool. We get quiet at the end of December. So we have a forced annual shutdown from the 25th of December till the 3rd of Jan. And we said, if you are absent less than five days a year in, in a calendar year, and you read all of the company newsletters, and we've got an app that can track whether someone's read it or not, we will give you the annual shutdown leave for free. So you will give, get those days and they won't come off your annual leave. And uh, in the first year, we were able to drop our absenteeism rates to below 1%. And people were actually putting in for annual leave when they were booked off for a week when they had the flu so that they wouldn't lose out in those nine days. Then we looked at it again the following year and we started realizing in our industry, we've got a lot of youngsters and we've got a lot of bad lifestyle. There's a lot of smoking, there's a lot of bad food. There's, it's just the nature of events. And we started realizing that so many people in our business were smoking and it was taking so much time away. So we said, if you're a non-smoker, you would get an extra five days over that shutdown period uh, at no, no cost to you from your annual leave. And we've had quite a few people actually quit smoking so they could get that extra leave. And uh, so yeah, those are just like, it's it's interesting. The minute you have data you can actually start implementing really clever things that are not necessarily monetary-based. And yes, some companies can't afford to do that because they're busy over December. But for us, it really didn't make a difference to whether those staff were there or not. And it's become a real incentive for people to have good behavior around absenteeism and have good, solid incentive around living a healthier life.
0: I mean, I love, I love how practical all this stuff is, you know, because you're talking about data, but your data is... Um you know, a Google doc and are people <laughs> exactly. opening a newsletters or not? It doesn't have to become this hugely yeah. complicated, hugely, hugely difficult thing. And now I also appreciate that it's very much your culture that, you, you know, like your specific. So so we, I couldn't take what you're
1: doing and just implement it. I have to figure out how that applies in in yeah, nice works well, world. I mean, I said earlier, it's really all about intent. Like, do you want to be different to your competitors? And do you decide one day to start? And the first iterations are probably gonna be horrible, but as you do them and you reflect on them and you review on them, you can keep making them better and better. And when you, as in me, is the dumbest person in the room, then you know that there are people in the company that can help you take that leaps and bounds forward. And uh, I just really have learned to trust that process. And if there's a good idea, test it, and uh, and see where it takes you.
0: That's amazing. I think that's a lovely lovely thought to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Dylan. I really Thanks appreciate it. That was really cool. And I need to go back into my business and uh, spend some time working on on strategy. I've been spending all my time on product development. Um, so, so thank you very much. Uh, you've been listening to Radio, a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa quick shout out to our sponsors who who help us run EONSA, SA to 10XE to LaborNet, uh Bidvest McCarthy and Bidvest Car Hire you guys are absolutely amazing and if you want you can go to the kilowatt av um, award ceremony in the, at the end of the year next year you just need to email Dylan and he'll <laughs> he'll invite you absolutely um it, it, we always encourage people to share this if you know an entrepreneur who is struggling with strategy or or culture, please pass this podcast on to him. I think that's why we do this kind of thing. Um, Dylan, you can also reach out to him. If if you are an a, a entrepreneur and you're looking for a little bit more info, go to eonetwork.org. And yeah, we'd encourage you to subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you in the next one. Cheers, Dylan. Thanks, Thanks. Ross. Bye.